0: Anyway, well, if you're visiting with us today, thank you so much for being here. My name is Kyle, and uh I'm lead pastor here, so I'll give you all a second. Let the balcony get situated again. <laughs> anyway, well, we're going to do uh, child dedications in a bit, so I know there's uh, some visitors here for that. We're glad that you chose to come and support your families and such, and, and I know that they're grateful you're here also. Uh, so we'll get to those here in, here in just a little bit. And uh, as a way of, of kind of talking about child dedications, um, let, me, let me just say we'll have to do another one in nine months, if you understand what I'm trying to say. So but Patricia and I are expecting our fourth. That's right, Four. and and no we don't know what causes it so don't ask all right we're not sure and i don't want to i don't want to know okay i don't want to know it's weird so uh anyway we're very excited and, and hopefully we'll find out in a i guess a couple of months what we're having uh, but for now it's just the 4th and that's what we'll name it the 4th and so cuz it's the 4th kid and that's really all that matters right um anyway we're we're pumped so if y'all see patricia give her a A handshake, a high five, let her know you're happy for her or something. So, uh, anyway, cool. How do we transition from that? If you have your Bible, why don't you you grab that? Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We are currently in a series uh, on the Gospel of John. And we've titled this series, Seeing Jesus, Finding Life. Seeing Jesus, finding life. The reason we did that is because John says, hey, here's the purpose of why I wrote this. Uh, In John chapter 20, we read uh, something along these lines. He says, I've written these things so that you may see Jesus, uh, see that He is the Son of God, He is the Messiah, and having seen Him, that you may find life in His name. So that's the point. Right? It's to see Jesus each week. We come in here and we're opening up our Bibles in John and we're, we're hoping to see Jesus in such a way that it creates life in us. And so that's our prayer as we begin to look at the text here in a moment. But I want to say this kind of as a preface about this text. We are in John seven fifty three through eight eleven, And so some of you are going to have a, a footnote. Some of you are going to have a note before the text gets started. Some of you may not even have this text in your Bible. Uh, and here's here's why uh, these verses, this story about the woman who is caught in adultery, which some of you are probably familiar with, uh, are just it's not present in some Greek manuscripts now not all but some uh, this story um, sorry, and in others uh, it appears at different points in the gospels. So some Greek manuscripts don't have it at all. some put it in other places. Um, like after chapter, in chapter 7, some will place it after verse 36. Um, some will place it elsewhere in John, and then uh, some manuscripts even place it in Luke. So this diversity kind of creates this uncertainty about where the story may have originally appeared, uh, and if at all, if it appeared in John's original document. But its presentation of Jesus is consistent with the rest of Scripture consistent with the rest of the Gospels, and it most likely tells a true story of an event that happened in Jesus' life. And, and so here's what I mean by that. John's final statement in this book, in this Gospel, is found in chapter 21, verse 25, and he says this, and I just think it gives us room to believe that this was an event from Jesus' life. Um, and it says this, he says, Now there are also many things that Jesus did, Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Isn't that incredible? And and so, oh, to know every event of Jesus' life. I mean, to have that before us would be astounding. But, you know, one day we will. And and for now, we see in part, and, and so we have what's found in God's Word. And so this text falls after verse 752, um, I want to preach it that way, and this is how we've encountered it. And so as we get ready to preach it, let's pray. Father, we, we love You. We praise You, Lord, for uh, just how good You are to us. We praise You for Your mercy as we've sang about so faithfully today, and as we no doubt are about to encounter in Your Word. I pray now that You open our hearts by the power of Your Spirit and just do a work in us. Help us to leave this place transformed by Your Word, by the renewing of our mind. Help this Word to pierce down to the very depths of who we are, to discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts and minds. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, you and I, if, if we're honest, we often get righteousness and judgment wrong. We, we often base righteousness and judgment on someone's works. And because we do that, we will often count other people's sins before counting our own. It's an ugly truth to admit, but it's a truth that we should all admit. Uh, And so it kind of works itself out this way. You may hear someone say this, or you may say this, did you you hear about so-and-so? I can't believe that she would do something like that. Bless her heart, right? Because that's That's how you disguise gossip in the South. You have to end it with bless her heart. And then you say, oh, no, I wasn't gossiping. I was sharing a prayer request. And so it's bless her heart. And and so we often try to drag people into judgment through our own pronounced judgment on them. First, it happens in our eyes. And then secondly, it'll occur through gossip or some other form, uh, like a disguised prayer request. Uh, so that other people begin to see just how nasty that person is. A- and then finally, what happens is, I think we just kind of decide, let's just leave them there in that and let the Lord work that out. So we did what we wanted to do. We made them look really bad, and, in, and, and what happens is, when we make them look really bad, we look really good, right? By, just by comparison. Well, at least I'm not like that sinner over there. And so, what if I told you that our method was wrong? Would you believe me? What, what if I, I said, we're often as heartless and hypocritical as Pharisees? We'll see this in our text today, and we'll see Jesus' response. And brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to know today, is that we need to pay very very careful attention to how Jesus handles this situation because, as always, He's showing us a much, much better way, better for our souls and better for the souls of others. And so about our text, let me just kind of lay the cards out on the table right here out of the gate. Jesus, in this text, is going to reestablish the foundation of righteousness. He's going to take it from its current foundation... And, and move the needle a bit. And He shows us, here's what, here's what Christ is going to show us today. He's going to show us that righteousness and judgment should be founded on grace, on mercy. And that, if it's not, we, we must be very careful because what's going to happen is we're going to become heartless and hypocritical like Pharisees in the way that we deal with people. And so let me just... Let me just read this text to you today. And uh, John, we're going to start in verse 753 there and just read through 811, okay? It says, they, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning He came again to the temple. All the people came to Him, and He sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say, Jesus? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, seemingly uninterested in their question, and begins to draw in the sand with his finger or ride on the ground with his finger. And then it says as they continued to ask him, so he's basically ignoring him. Jesus, we've asked you a question. Don't you answer us. What do you say we should do with this woman? And then it says that as they continued to ask, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and rode on the ground. Now there's tons of speculation about what Jesus is writing here. Tons, right? And we'll never know. Now I would offer this, that he's most likely writing out... No, I won't even say most likely. I think, let's put it that way. I think it is likely that he is writing out the Ten Commandments. That that he's showing them as they're accusing this woman all the sin that they're guilty of themselves. And he, he knew the intent of their heart. He very well could have been writing out their sins which is why it was taking him so long. <laughs> anyway, whatever it was, it convicts them. Look, and in verse 9 it says, but when they heard it, and then I don't really understand why the ESV omits this verse, this piece of this verse, but the New King James does not. And I want to add it in here because I, I think it's important. It says, but when they heard it, there's this phrase, if you have the New King James, it says, being convicted in their conscience They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before Him. And then in verse 10, we see Jesus stood up and He said to her, Woman, where are they? Now, the word woman there is the same way that we say ma'am. We've addressed this in in previous texts before. It's just the way that we would address a lady respectfully. All right, It's not woman, it's ma'am. He says, where are they? As no one condemned you? And she said, respectfully back to him, No one, Lord. And then Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin, and from now on, sin no more. Just an amazing, amazing story. And so, again, let me just lay this before you. Jesus is reestablishing righteousness and judgment on the basis of grace. And so I think there are at least two things to observe here which have some implications for our lives. All right? One is the Pharisees display righteousness based on heartlessness and hypocrisy. If you're taking notes, you need to write that down. All right, I wrote the Pharisees there to be gentle to all of us, but we could put in there, I often display righteousness based on heartlessness and hypocrisy. Because I think as we go through this, we'll have some things in our lives exposed. And so Jesus is exposing the heartless, hypocritical judgment of these Pharisees. And I think that we're naturally bent toward the wrong manner of righteousness. Naturally, we're bent towards judgment without Grace, without mercy. Here's what I mean by that. I think naturally we're not interested in giving others a chance. Like, you wronged me. You deserve the full letter of the law, nothing else. Right? We're not interested naturally in bearing the burdens of others. Bearing with the burdens of others. We're not interested in hoping all good things for people. We're not not naturally interested in believing all good things for others. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, it says love bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things. We don't naturally do that. Typically, what we're interested in is saving our face by exposing someone else's. Now this is exactly what the Pharisees are trying to do, though they're taking it a bit further. They're willing to expose the sin of this woman to Jesus, but the real intention is not. they're not even really interested in the law because the law that they're referring to for Moses says you bring the man and the woman forward. And so really all they're interested in is, Jesus, what do you think we ought to do with her? And Jesus, like He always does, it's, you know, we like to see things as black or white, black or white, black or white. What I'm finding in Scripture is there's a lot of black and white, yes, but man, there are so many times the Scripture just nails this gray area, like shows me the difference between what I think black or white would be and just nails it right there in the middle. Like, oh, I didn't even consider that was an option. (laughs) Jesus does this so well right here. He begins to lay this out. He's, He knows that they've come to trap Him, and He knows that if He gives the wrong answer, they're going to arrest Him. If they condemn Him, I mean, if He condemns her, He'll he'll look like He's going against His teaching about being full of grace and mercy, being full of truth and wisdom. And then if He doesn't condemn her, He'll look like He's going against the law of Moses, which they could arrest Him for. What they're trying to do is discredit Christ right here. And I, I think that we need to see what that type of behavior looks like so that we can be saved from practicing it also. But the first implication from our text today, or from this first point, is this. is and You just write this down in, in your margin if you want. You don't have to. You can just listen. I think it will resonate as true. It is all too common. For those indulgent of their own sin to be harsh toward others' sins. It's all too common that we are indulgent in our own sin that will keep that thing as a pet while crucifying someone for their sin. Now, that shows heartlessness, certainly, and it also reveals a hypocrisy in anyone who calls themselves a believer. If, if you say you're a believer, you say you love Christ, and then you treat people that way, that's hypocritical. But the truth is that when we find sin in others, it should drive us to look deeply in ourselves. Well, that doesn't even make sense. Well, I think this is that middle ground. When you see sin in others, it ought to make you aware that there's probably sin in your life you're unaware of. When was the last time you looked introspectively to, to see what's there? So when we find sin in others, we should look at ourselves and then we should be more severe with sin in our own lives than we are in the lives of others. This ought to be the way we act. Jesus was constantly waging war against the heartless and hypocritical, uh, this heartless and hypocritical judgment of the Pharisees. This is part of what he does throughout his whole ministry as he's establishing, Grace and mercy. One of the best illustrations on how foolish it is to be this way comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching before the multitudes, and he says, in Matt, we can read about it in Matthew 7 1 through 5, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure, you use it will be measured to you now that alone is scary enough but but then he reveals something that i think is worth looking at today now because i'm not a very manly man this is the biggest log i thought i could handle so but jesus in verse 3 he says why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice that log that is in your own eye. So it's like you've got this log here and you're pointing out, Michael, I see that speck in your eye. Why do you have that speck in your eye? Are you foolish for having that speck in your eye? Like, and he just, it's, you, you can see this throughout our culture that Christians all the time are standing up and they're pointing out specks in other people's eyes and they've got this log sitting in their own eye. And Jesus says, it's foolish. It's foolish to do that. He goes on to say, how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck. Michael, let me grab that speck while I've got this log in my eye. He says, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, simply based just on the principle of the matter, it is foolish for us to go around pointing out the sins of others. It's just foolish. If we're the slightest bit honest with ourselves, even without encountering Jesus as your Savior, so, so say this is true for even unbelievers also, we'll all agree, I think, that, that we have no room in our lives to be pointing out the sins of others because None of us are walking around as, as perfection personified. So it's foolish then to try to save face, to try to posture yourself before others, to try to look good before others by condemning others but because the truth is we're all full of wrong actions. You say, well, no, we are. We are. If you weren't, Christ doesn't have to die. But but what we know is that because we're all sinners, Christ had to die, which means we all were in on the murder of Christ. So in summary, for the Pharisees, and, and I think often for us too, righteousness was all about works. But, and praise God for these buts, um, Number two, we see Jesus reestablishes righteousness based on grace. Jesus reestablishes righteousness based on grace, based on mercy. One of my favorite things about this text is that it's just chock full of God's grace and mercy toward humanity, off of humanity. We see God's grace and mercy toward the adulteress and that her sin was brought into the light. Well, that doesn't seem very graceful and merciful. Well, it is, and, and I don't want you to miss this. Please don't miss this. It, it is a mercy to sinners to have their sin brought into the light. When your sin is brought into the light, that is God's mercy on your life. Whether you believe in Him as Savior or not, He is using that as a way to Convict your heart and your conscience so that you will turn from that and turn to Him. Now I can say that with confidence because we all would agree that it's better to be temporarily embarrassed or ashamed than it is to be eternally condemned to hell, right? Is my life so precious that I would not want to be temporarily embarrassed? Because I don't want to look foolish before all of you. I would choose that over eternal condemnation? No way. Embarrass me, please. I want to spend eternity in heaven. I'm not worried about my my posture before you or how my face might look before you, clearly. (laughs) But we also see God's grace and mercy towards self-righteous Pharisees and that He reveals their dirty hearts and sinful actions to them. Jesus shows great mercy here, great grace here, because He aimed not only to bring the sinner to repentance by showing her His mercy, but also He aimed to bring the prosecutors to repentance by showing them their sin. It's quite interesting. After Jesus says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, we see in verse 9 that having heard it, being convicted in their conscience, they went away from Him. I don't think so. Jesus revealed them to themselves. That's what happened. They began to see in themselves how rotten they were. They gave him this A or B option, and Jesus said, I'll take C, (laughs) Trebek. I think I just mixed a bunch of games in my head, sorry. So I think that they were probably afraid of what his next words may do to them. His next words very well could have been revealing them to the world. And they're like, let's get out of here. (laughs) I I don't want that to happen. Let's save our face for now. We'll come get him later. That is what God's Word does for us. In Hebrews 4.12, we read this about the Word of God, that the Word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And this right here is what you see happening in verse 9. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is what the Word of God does for us. You would be wise to listen. God's Word makes an appeal to your conscience, which forces you to either run from Jesus or to Jesus. There is no middle option there, I assure you. But but the appeal must be made so that you can truly see who you are. You you must be revealed to yourself. J.C. Ryle says this, I've quoted it to you before, but it's, it's worth mentioning again. Until men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and their need, no real good is ever done to their souls. I agree. He goes on to say, until a sinner sees himself as God sees him. Namely, an enemy of a holy God. That person will continue careless, trifling, and unmoved. Man, that's true. Friends, our our concern in this life should be the saving of our souls, not the saving of our reputation. Your reputation is meaningless. Even some of the most famous people the world has ever Known in their day are forgotten right now. Many of the people you love most, even you forget them. Like your life is a vapor, your reputation is really nothing. Your your soul is what lives forever, not your reputation. Far too many of us are worried about reputations to deal truthfully with our souls. Therefore, like these Pharisees, we run from Jesus. Don't you know it's foolish to run from Jesus? Jesus is your greatest hope. Let's rephrase that. Jesus is your only hope. He's your only hope for salvation in this life. Jesus is it. You will not ever stand before God on your own and make it into heaven. You just won't. Think about your life. Every one of your sins is a violation against the holy God. Every one of your sins is going to separate you from God unless you place your faith in the mediator that He's given us, which is His Son. It's His Son. He's our only hope. He is the bread of life. And we must arrive at the understanding of Peter. Remember Peter a couple of chapters back? What does he say? Lord, to whom else would we go? See, Peter understood something about Lord. <laughs> Namely, that he was Lord and Peter could not be Lord. Namely, that he needed a Lord because he couldn't be Lord. So This woman's prosecutors leave, and she's left there with Jesus. And Jesus stands up and He says, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And the woman replies, No one, Lord. And and Jesus, making a statement that surely would have shocked this woman. Like she's got to think, someone's about to stone me. Someone's about to end my life. It sounds like this man is, is just holy enough to be able to do that. Jesus stands alone with her as the only one who could have cast the stone. And he doesn't cast the stone. He says, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, with this statement, neither do I, Jesus creates this new environment where this woman could come alive. It's here that she encounters the grace and the mercy of the living God, the forgiveness of her sin. This encounter would surely change her life forever. And so the second implication of our text today is is this. Because Christ forgives us, we should go and sin no more. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, neither do I condemn you, go And continue sinning. Eh. And I think we're guilty of this also. We don't call people to repentance. You see, judgment is not wrong, but judgment for judgment's sake is wrong. Judgment that is not based on the grace and mercy of God that would throw people at the feet of Jesus to receive mercy, not a stoning, is wrong. We don't drag people to Jesus so that they can be stoned, we drag them to Jesus hoping they'll cling to Him for mercy. Now we do that. That happens when sin is revealed in us. Certainly. It doesn't say continue sinning because that's not what you do when you encounter grace and mercy. We don't go on sinning because we have grace. We go and sin no more because we have grace. And so using grace as a license for sin is just foolish, but it's been around for ages. Paul addresses it in Romans 6 where he says this about this free grace from God, this saving grace of God. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because if grace is free, wouldn't it make sense that if I go on sinning, I just get more grace? Wouldn't that kind of be the question you begin to ask? Paul says, by no means. By no means do we go on sinning. How can we who died to sin still live in it? But the hard truth is this. I want you to hear this with all the compassion I can muster for you. You cannot be truly sorry for your sins until you give them up. You can't be truly sorry for your sins until you give them up. By continuing in your sins, what you're at the very least saying is, this is more important to me than Jesus and His commands to be different. You're also saying that the power of Christ is not enough for me. That this is just who I am. Both of those are wrong things to do. And you know that. Because you're smart people. My fear is that for some of you, at worst, what you're saying by continuing in sin is that you're saying, I don't really know the grace and mercy of Jesus. never encountered the grace and mercy of Jesus. I've never made Him my Lord. I've never known Him as a Savior. The truth is, friends, only you can answer that question. Only you know the answer to that. R.C. Sproul has this hilarious quote. I don't think he meant it to be hilarious, but it is kind of. He says, and he just recently passed away, but he wrote this in a book called The Holiness of God. He said, it seems utterly stupid (laughs) for a person to do something that he knows will rob him of happiness. Can any of us disagree with that? Like, why do we do things over and over and over again that we know are going to rob us of happiness? Well, here's why. We have a mixed up idea of pleasure and happiness. We, we equate them, but pleasure is temporary, it's fleeting, but God-given happiness, or joy if you like that word better, is not fleeting, it's not temporary. It's sustaining, and it's life-giving. But we'll mix them up. We think that because something is pleasurable that It brings happiness. And so we continue to do things that are pleasurable only to become very unhappy people, very sinful people. So Sproul says, yet we do it. It seems utterly stupid, yet we do it. The mystery of sin is not only that it is wicked and destructive, but also that it is so downright stupid. (laughs) He has a way of encouraging people that I just don't have. So I thought I'd read him today. You see, sin may bring temporary pleasure, but it won't bring sustaining joy and happiness. It's just not going to happen. That's why some people go from relationship to relationship. I suspect that's why this woman was in adultery. People who do that leave many hearts destroyed in their wake of pleasure-seeking. It's temporary pleasure, and when the pleasure starts to fade, They leave for another opportunity. Now, we do this in all sorts of things, but man, I see it a lot in relationships these days. And so can I, if you're single in here, can I just pastor you for a second? Give me a voice in your life for just a moment. Maybe you're dating seriously. Maybe you're looking for a spouse. You just hear these words. And if you're married, it's probably good truth for us too. You should check the resume of anyone you're considering getting into a relationship with. Now, if you're married, you shouldn't be considering getting into a relationship with anyone. Let's just make that clear. All right? And if the person you are pursuing as a single person is married, you should not be seeking to get into a relationship with them, period. It's wrong. It's sinful. It's destructive. Let's keep going. So what does their resume look like, single folks? Are there any red flags, just simply based on relationships, lots of relationships, several marriages, just a total inability to be committed? Nothing in their life says they love the Lord. Would would you do me a favor, please? Please. And save me and CR, the grief counseling. And and do not sell... Do not sell the sustaining joy of being with Christ for a temporary pleasure found in a relationship. Would you do me that favor, please? for the good of your own souls. Married people, would you be committed to your spouse? Honor your vows, to love and to cherish, till death do you part. You see, we're going to do a, ser- a series on Ecclesiastes over the summer, and one of my favorite things about it is the words beauty fades. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Beauty just, It fades yet we base so much of our pleasure in relationships on beauty. The one thing that we're told clearly fades. The one thing we're told will not last forever. We're also told that circumstances change. That there's a season of being rich. There's a season of being poor. We're we're given all these instructions in the Bible, yet when they happen in our marriage, we're like, I didn't sign up for that. Well, yeah, you did. And you were instructed, at least in a Christian marriage, you we are instructed that these things would happen. But you know what lasts forever? You know what's sexy for a lifetime? Godliness. Godliness. Ask any couple in here who's been married for 25 plus years, 30 plus years. Godliness is sexy for a lifetime. So don't trade your, your sustaining joy in Christ for temporary pleasure. Now, if you're the one doing the wrecking, I just need to be very candid with you. You're the one going from relationship to relationship. You can't find what you want, but you you enjoy the ride. Knock it off. Knock it off. You are a predator and you need to repent before it's too late for your soul. I know that's hard. And if I didn't love you, I wouldn't say it. That's true. But it's not just relationships, is it, guys? I mean, if we're honest, we're all guilty of desiring temporary pleasure over the sustaining joy of Christ in too many areas to name today. We just don't have the time. So let me me get to this. Jared Wilson has this great quote about change. He says, people change when the pain of changing is less than the pain of staying the same. People change when the pain of changing is less than the pain of staying the same. Now, let me illustrate it this way. What if you were docked $100 every time you committed that sin that nags you? Now, I'm not talking about just sins, okay? None of us are getting paid if we're doing that. I'm talking about the sin that nags you, the one you're trying to overcome, one you've been working on, you're struggling with. Truth is, we're not typically struggling with those very hard, are we? we're struggling to mask it, we're not so much struggling to flee it. What if every time you committed that sin, your employer said, that's $100 from your pay. I suspect that once you received your next paycheck, you'd be willing to make some changes because it'd be too painful for you to stay in your sin. Yet something far greater, potentially far more painful than money is at stake in your life that is the eternal destination of your soul and we trifle with sin like it's not a big deal Jesus makes this statement go and sin no more he's calling us to live a life of holiness based on grace not your works you're not trying to earn anything but you're living from that grace and that mercy that's been given to you so How do we change? How do we take the words of Christ that discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, and how do we then run to Christ instead of cower from Christ or flee from Christ? We we must see Him as living water for our thirsty souls. We, We must see that He is the well in this dry desert. So some people think that this text today belonged after chapter 7, verse 36, right there before verse 37. Now, I think that could be accurate, honestly. But I wasn't, wasn't so sure that I wanted to change it. I wasn't going to do that. I don't think that's right. But, but, and so we won't know until we get to heaven, but let's just imagine that it is. Let's imagine for just a moment that after this exchange that we've read here today, we would see again verse 37, which Alan preached so faithfully last week. We would read this, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. He will find living water for his soul. Now imagine, just imagine with me, this woman just moments earlier caught in the act of adultery looking to a man. God bless her heart, bless her soul, looking to a man to fill her because her soul is so parched for a true water, something that will fill and last forever. Imagine it with me. And she's standing there, and her sin has been brought before the multitudes gathered at this feast. And she's left there, and it's her and Jesus. All the prosecutors are gone, but I imagine there's still a crowd standing around just to see what would happen. And she's encountered the living waters of God, the grace and mercy of God through Jesus. Imagine what that must have been like for her soul. That's what's available to you today that relief. When You're thirsty and you drink water. It's it's way better than that. Even we don't know thirst very well here. I think John Piper just kind of wraps all this up really well. So I'll just steal his line. He says the story points us to the message of the whole New Testament, namely that we are called to be as to be holy as God is holy. God hates sin, but pursuing holiness without a profound experience of grace in our lives produces hypocrisy and doctrinal cruelty. Jesus came into the world to provide that grace through His cross and to establish holiness, righteousness, and justice on the foundation of our experience of His grace. So Come to Him. Come to Jesus. Receive His grace and set your face to sin no more. Amen? Would you stand to your feet this morning?